We are in our third week of Mark, and what that means is we're going to start speeding up a little bit, okay? So if you're new and you're just joining us as I kick a few chords, um, my name is Ryan. Nice to have you here. Mark chapter 1, Mandy read it. Uh, one of the things I want to let you know, is, this is really important in the whole story, is that Jesus does not drop out of thin air. Jesus doesn't drop out of thin air. Jesus doesn't show up um, just out of nowhere. Jesus um, is born in the year three or four, okay, BC, and he's a, he's born as a child of the of a Torah uh, observant Jewish family. Now that is really really important, and it really matters, okay. Because Jesus was not a 12th century Turk. He wasn't a 15th century Russian. He was, a, he, he was born to Jewish parents. He was Jewish. And, and the reason why that matters is because Jesus is the climax of the story of Israel. And you can't, I would argue, you can't understand Jesus without understanding Israel. And a lot of times, what we hear is we hear Jesus loves you, and that's true, and Jesus uh, forgives you, and he wants to have a relationship. All that is true. But we cannot understand Jesus outside of the context of Israel. And that's why Mark, right off the bat, quotes some prophets. I'm just going to reread verses 2 and 3. Well, half of 2, it says, I will send my messenger... Ahead of you, who will prepare your way? A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now what Mark is doing, he's drawing attention to whole passages of scripture. Mark is actually helping people understand that Jesus isn't just some new, you know, some guy out of, out of nowhere. He actually is coming with a purpose and it's all been foretold. And, and what's interesting is this is not just a quote from Isaiah. Um, it's, just digging into this a little bit, there are three different prophets that Mark kind of mishmashes together into one quote. Um, the three prophets are Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Malachi. And what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to really quick look at the, these little lines in context in the Old Testament. And hopefully it'll give us a bigger picture of where Mark's going, okay? So Exodus chapter 23 is where we find the first quote, the first actual phrase that he is uh, he's drawing their attention to. And, and, and this is um, Exodus 23, just to, uh, to familiarize yourself with the story of Israel to this point. Israel has been rescued out of Egypt. Now they've been wandering in the desert. Uh, there was this big, huge scene with Mount Sinai and Ten Commandments and, you know, all the cool, uh, you know, Ten Commandments stuff, the Exodus, you know, all that kind of stuff you remember. Verse 20 of chapter 23. God says, see, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him. And listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him, 
He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. Verse 23, my angel, or can be translated my messenger, will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessing will be on your food and your water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. So imagine this imagery of peace and prosperity and everything working. He says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and, and the Hittites out of your way. I will not drive them out in a single year because the land uh, would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, and I'll pay attention to this phrase, little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. This story was the central story in, Jesus, in the Jesus narrative. This story of Exodus was the central story. So imagine uh, if you're an Israelite, the, the whole paradigm your community lives with is this idea of past, present, and future is the idea of Exodus, is the idea of rescue, is the idea of being brought out of uh, slavery. And this is where they celebrate the Feast of, the, the feast of Passover. And, and this idea of a lamb being slain, um, and then how God passed over, right, the homes of the Israelite people that put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. Um, this was the story. This was the story of Israel. This is how you understood the context of your people. So the second quote, we're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Now at this point in Isaiah chapter 40, this is... Um, the prophet, okay, Isaiah, the people are in exile. And, and Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are actually Isaiah warning the people, here's what's going to happen, okay, if you continue on this path. Here's what's going to happen if you continue down this road. Um, there's this warning to repent. He says, watch out. You're going to end up, Isaiah says, right back where you started, in captivity, in, um, in some foreign land. And then in chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah, so there's two halves of Isaiah, chapter 40 to the end of it is all about um, God's going to rescue, that God still will one day come and comfort his people. And so this is, some say it's written down the perspective of what would be years later. Um, and so the question is, did Israel listen to Isaiah? Did Israel listen? No. Israel did not listen to the warning of Isaiah and Jeremiah. They didn't, they didn't listen. And it's funny because it's nothing like you and I. Right? Like we figured it out. Isaiah chapter 40, he, he says, uh, 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for, forgiven. That she has received from the Lord's hand double fault for all of her sins. So no longer a warning. First 39 chapters are a warning. The, the second part is this idea of comfort. He says, I am with you. And then, and then it says this, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. This idea of, uh, in a sense, of build a freeway, right? Build a freeway. Uh, to you know, when you when you drive through the mountains and you see how they cut things into the sides, and, and some of you are like, that's horrible. Um, but this idea of like building a, a smooth roadway, right, for the exiles to return, um, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is the prophecy about the end of exile. This is the idea behind it. And God is coming back. That God actually departs Israel, right? That God actually, um, his glory and his presence depart from the temple. Um, Israel is in exile. They're away from their land. They're away from the temple. And there's a coming day, God says, when I will come back. That I will come back and, 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 and bring you back out of exile. So this language is all new Exodus language. All this language that the people of Israel have seen, heard over and over in the prophets is actually this idea of new exodus. And, 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 and when all this happens, it's like exodus all over again. That there's this, there's a way out. There's the way out of slavery to sin. There's a way out of addiction to religion. All this stuff. And it's beginning to happen again. It's like a new exodus. Okay. Now the third quote, we're racing through this Old Testament stuff, right? This third quote, okay, comes out of Malachi. And remember, Mark mashes all these quotes together because he's making a point. He says, it says this in Malachi chapter 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So just like Isaiah, Malachi is saying that, that God will return, okay, to the temple and Jerusalem. And in verse 2 it says, but, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by as in former years. So I will put to you, uh, so I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers and their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So when Yahweh comes back, okay? This is what Malachi is saying. It will mean judgment. Now, that word is something that we freak out about. Um, 
But what that means is good news. It's actually gospel. That when God comes back and he's going to make things how they should be. And so if God's going to come back and make things how they should be, he's actually saying, I'm going to, before that happens, I'm going to send a messenger. I'm going to get you ready. I'm going to prepare for that. Uh, I want that to be good news for you, not scary news. So if you're on the, if you're on God's side of what's supposed to be taking place, this is good news. But if you're on the side of oppressing the poor and doing all these things that's not on God's terms, it's going to be a scary thing. So let's circle back to Mark chapter 1, because this is where it gets really, really cool. In between Malachi, which is the last prophet we read, and John the Baptist, it's 400 years. Think about that. It's 400 years. That's longer than our country has been in existence. 400 years where the, the, the scholars and the, and the people of Israel believed that, that God was silent. That God didn't move. That God didn't show up. 400 years. First century Jews are back in the land. But here's the important part. They still believed they were in exile. They still believed that God was not with them. They still believed that God was holding back from them. The Jews were scattered all over the empire. Okay? They were under the oppression of Rome, but they had been under the oppression of Babylon, okay? Greece. Uh, they were under the oppression of the Hasmoneans, the Persians. They were not free. They were waiting for God's glory. There were still priests who were doing the priest thing. And there were people sacrificing at the temple. And there was this kind of facade of a temple put up by a traitor named Herod. And they were living in this reality. So for generations and generations, the words of the prophets had just been ringing in their ears. One day, right? One day God will return. But there was no presence of Yahweh at the point at this point. And they believed they were still in exile and they were waiting for this new exodus. They were waiting for a voice in the wilderness. They were yearning for the day when a messenger would come and prepare the way. And in verse chapter uh, Mark chapter one, verse four. It says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Mark's way of saying, John is the voice that you knew about in Isaiah. John is that voice calling from the wilderness. So imagine someone important is coming over to your house. Okay, If you know somebody important is coming to your house for dinner, what would you do? Clean. Nailed it. Clean. Anything else? What, what else would you do? Cook? Shop? Cook? What? You would set the what? Oh, yeah. You would, you would, you would go out and purchase stuff to, to offer them. You would clean. You would prepare, right? Those places in your house that you, know, you could shove stuff to get it out of the way. You know what I mean? You would do everything, right? Some of you would actually do something in your yard or whatever, you know. You would prepare the way. 
Um, anybody watch The Crown? Anybody watching this? Like four of us. Um, there's this line, this curious line, six of us. There's this curious line in The Crown where um, one of the queen's attendants um, says, uh, wherever the queen goes, she smells fresh paint, right? So every new town she goes to visit, any, every new place she goes today, everybody's like, well, we better paint, you know, because the queen's coming. This is the idea of preparing the way. And so John's job is to get Israel ready for the coming of God. How does John do this? You would clean and maybe cook. John, in verse 4, says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That word in Greek, baptizo, means to dip, to plunge, to soak or immerse all the way underwater. And this is an evocative symbol in Mark's day. This idea of baptism. And I think Jewish people and Muslim people understand baptism way more than Christians do. For people in, in those traditions, this idea of baptism at its root, okay, isn't like a cute little numbers game the churches do. How many people can we baptize? It, it, it's actually transferring your identity from one family to another. That's at the root of baptism. Okay? So this idea of being baptized is actually an identity issue. I'm now being baptized. Okay, this water baptism of John is actually transferring my allegiance. Now, here's what's interesting about it. If you, I mean, and you can ask people, if you have friends that are uh, Muslim or whatever, if, if someone was to get baptized into, and they were Muslim, and get baptized into Christianity, their family would actually hold a funeral because it's, it's like you died. Okay, that's the idea of this identity changeover. So Gentiles, it was thought, were the only ones that should be baptized, right? Because Jewish people, well, they're, they're already loved by God, right? They're Hebrews. They have Abraham's blood in their veins. And, and, and what John's saying is just because you are Jewish doesn't mean you're in. So John's actually saying, you need, Jewish, you're Jewish? You need to come. Okay? You need to come and, and just like the, the Gentiles and, and, and experience baptism, repentance through faith. And it's this totally unheard of idea. For the Jewish people. In verse 5 it says. The whole Judean countryside. And all the people of Jerusalem. Went out to him. So I want you to consider. How many people that could have been. I mean that's. There's not like. You know a couple dozen people. That are just like. Man that sounds kind of cool. Like it says like massive groups of people. We don't know how long a time this was. This could have been a summer full of baptisms. But a ton of people went out to the wilderness to get baptized. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Why does Mark put the Jordan River in it? Why is that important? Because the Jordan River is the boundary line between Israel and the wilderness. Between the promised land and wandering in the wilderness, right? 
Joshua crosses over, huge symbolism with the Jordan River. This whole idea, I mean, if you're, if you're Jewish and you're hearing this, this is like new exodus. This is language, right? And you can be a part of it. Verse 6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Just, just a quick poll. Anybody eating locusts? No, I'm not kidding. Like, people have. As if you've been to a Middle Eastern country or anybody? No? Come on. Yes. Crunchy? Was it good? No. Okay. Just wondering. Um, wild honey. Anybody just jammed their hand into some wild honey you have? Is it good? Anybody wear camel hair clothing? No? Just wondering. Just throwing it out there. So there's two levels of meaning here. It's really important. I think this is really cool. John is pictured as this kind of rough and ready, unkept, living off the land guy, which is super important. Meaning John was nothing like the religious leaders of the day. He was total contrast to the religious leaders who were pretty elite. They kind of had it all together. They looked pretty nice. Um, they looked sharp. Uh, Jerusalem was wealthy and educated and connected. And, and if you were part of the religious leaders, you were probably part of the aristocracy. And, and some of the religious leaders were actually in collusion with Rome. And so this idea of this unkept, like, guy living off the land, off the grid, you know, out, <laughs> out in the wilderness is, is a beautiful thing. Um, I love how Luke puts it. This, I don't think this will be on the screen, but... Luke puts it like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, uh, his brother Philip Tetrarch, uh, Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, during this high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. All these super important people, Caesars, and heads of this church and all these governors and stuff like that. The word of God, the creator of everything, comes to John. And where is John? He's in the wilderness. He's cruising around with itchy skin and eating locusts. Like pouncing on locusts. And eating honey. Here's the thing, like just a side note. Ever feel like in your life... That God cannot use you because you do not have it all together. You ever feel that? Like just even on the side a little bit. Like God can't use me. I'm, I'm just this or I'm just that. Or God can't use me because if people knew my story, they probably wouldn't hang out with me. Uh, those kinds of things. Here's the thing. John had a voice. And he was pointing people to Jesus. And the question I have for you is, can you do that? Like, in, in, in maybe it's a simple way, where like this idea of whether you live in cubicle land or you're on campus or you're in this stage of your life where you feel like, really? Um, we have a lot of young moms here. It's like, how can God use my voice? I feel stuck. Um, God has you right where you're at. And the voice he has for you is part of your story. And I just want to encourage you with that. And the second thing is, you know, the whole clothing thing. But the second thing that was so interesting about this 
is so much more happening than just this clothing. It's actually an allusion to Elijah. And everybody was waiting for the next Elijah. Second Kings 1.8 says, they replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> like, Elijah is like known for what he wears. Garment of hair, leather belt. Oh, that's, that's Elijah, right? And, and what's interesting is Elijah wore the same clothing um, as John the Baptist did. He's in the wilderness, and he's always calling Israel to repentance. So Mark chapter 1, this is, this is Mark telling the story of Jesus. Jews are, are super excited for Elijah to reappear. Jews are super excited because Elijah, if you don't know the story, in the Old Testament, Elijah never dies. He is taken up to heaven, and it just so happens, it happens right next to the Jordan River. And so there's this, ooh, there's this huge symbolism happening. Uh, Malachi even talks about Elijah. Uh, he, he says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. This idea that we're going to see Elijah again. And so all of a sudden, John's out there in the wilderness eating uh, locusts and honey and doing his thing. And the people were expecting Elijah to reappear at any moment to usher in the new exodus. And then John uh, does all this Elijah stuff. And the people are like, oh, this is a big deal. In verse 7 it says, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I. Which, what is, who does Isaiah say is coming? Isaiah says Yahweh is coming. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Slaves would unstrap the sandals of guests at the door. When a guest would arrive at the door, the slave would actually meet the guest at the door, unstrap their sandals, and clean their feet. That idea of unstrapping someone's sandals isn't just, oh, I took your sandals off for you. It's like, no, you're actually getting the, the gunk out between the toes kind of thing. That's your job. John says, I am not even worthy enough to do that. In verse 8, he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. My baptism is to get you ready, but you're going to need more. There's more going on. Two things that are really interesting here. Isaiah, Malachi talk about Yahweh being the one that the messenger is going to introduce. Uh, Mark is saying the creator of the universe, the being who predates time and space, that God manifests himself in Jesus of Nazareth, meaning the coming of Jesus is the coming of God. Mark's making this huge claim and the second thing I think is sometimes we lose is this idea of the Holy Spirit and how we take the Holy Spirit for granted. Um, when, when Mark says, uh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, this, is the, this idea is really staggering to me. In the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God came on certain people. In the Old Covenant, covenant the Spirit of God came on prophets, like Samuel, came on priests, like Zadok, and then came on kings like David. And so when you read the Old Testament, it will say specifically, the Spirit of God came on David, or the Spirit of God fell on Samuel. 
And, and what's interesting is this idea of prophets and priests and kings and the spirit. And all three, prophets, priests, and kings in the Old Testament were anointed with oil, which is a symbolic thing, but it was also a powerful thing in which those people were set apart for God's spirit, God's active and dynamic presence involved in them and through them, working through them. And into the Old Testament for people of God, this wasn't for them. Your priest, your king, your prophet had the spirit. Now, in this new covenant, this age where Jesus comes, Jesus shows up as a prophet and a priest and a king. Jesus shows up to fulfill all three of those things. And this is new covenant. Isaiah actually says that uh, he would... God's going to pour water out on dry land, meaning this idea of, of this parched land that God's spirit was equated to the water that God was going to pour out on the dry land. And in and, and Ezekiel, the same thing, we actually sang a line from this, this idea of this valley of dry bones that, that this clean water would come and give you a heart of, of flesh, not a heart of stone, right? That like, and we know this living in Colorado, how dry it gets. Just this idea of, of water uh, reviving us and freshening us up. And, and, and there's the really cool version of, of the prophets. Joel says this in Joel chapter 2. And afterward, I will pour my spirit out on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women... I will pour out my spirit in all those days. Here's the idea. That God is wanting to do something really, really big. And in Jesus, all three roles, prophet, priest, and king, come together in one person, in Jesus. And what happens is, is because Jesus is all of those things, in that the anointed one, Jesus spreads out all of that onto his followers. And so we see in the New Testament, Paul talking about how we're all prophets. That we all have the gift of prophecy. The idea behind that is that you can all tell somebody, like if you are walking with the Spirit and listening to the Spirit, you can all encourage each other, the person next to you, the persons you live with, the, the people in your community, you can encourage them by the power of the Holy Spirit in you and through you. It's not talking about predicting the future, like on October 29th. No, it's, it's this idea of like, I see something that God sees in you, and you don't see it yet. And I want to encourage you with you. I want to bring fresh life into you because of that. Right? We don't do that enough. The second thing is this idea of being priests. Peter talks about how we are priesthood of believers, that we are actually mediators between humanity and God, that we actually have a way in our lives and in our stories and with our mouths and with our actions to bring people to God. What a beautiful thing. And the third one is that we are kings. And scripture says that we'll actually rule and reign with God. That God gives us these ways to enact his creation here and now. Now, why is this all important? Because you are baptized into and immersed into Jesus. That is so huge. If you follow Jesus and, 
your baptism of, is, is, is a, it's, not, it's not about an individual, individualistic thing. Um, it's about announcing that exile is over with a community that is a part of something called the new exodus. That is powerful. That's not just, uh, a forgive, forgive me for my sins, um, and now I'm going to go to church and um, just do life how I want to do it. What does this all mean? What is Mark saying? I think one of the things he's saying is, and this is just a thought, this is just me thinking. For the last 400 years, the dominant metaphor in Western churches like ours of God, what God has been doing in Jesus and through Jesus has been this idea of legal, of a legal transaction, okay? And so for some of you um, who are a little bit nerdier, this idea of substitution, okay? This, it's atonement is what Jesus did, what, what happened because of what Jesus did for us. And so this idea of a penalty that we had coming our way, that Jesus substituted himself for and took that penalty for us. This is nerdy. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. Randy just smiled at me. Jesus dies in my place. He pays a debt. And now I am justified, right? I am made right. I'm declared righteous because of what Jesus has done. And salvation, for many of us, is seen, because we're really good at making purchases, is seen as transactionary. Okay? So, I trade my sin, and Jesus takes my sin and gives me his righteousness. Okay? And you give Jesus your sin, he gives you your righteousness, and it's a great deal for you. It's a great thing. Okay? Um, why are we obsessed with this one way of thinking? The reason why is, there's a lot of reasons why, but one of the reasons why is um, many of the big thinkers for us were lawyers first. John Calvin was a lawyer. His mind was wrapped in legal language and linear thought. Charles Finney your experience, like the, the American kind of wave of Christianity was all kind of, a lot of it had to do with Charles Finney, he's one of the early American preachers. He was a lawyer. And 16th century literature was very legal. There was so much legal metaphor in anything 16th century literature. Why? Because people were learning how to live in a civil society. And there was this new thing happening all around them called land ownership. And so deeds and legalities and all of these things. And so in the context of that legal thinking, the gospel was being communicated. Now, all that's true, all that's somewhat right. The problem is in the New Testament, the legal metaphor is one of many metaphors for what God does through Jesus. The Bible is a symphony of metaphors. Of what God is doing through Jesus. And one of the main ones in the New Testament is Exodus. And that's, we, we overlook it so much because that really hasn't been our story, especially as Americans. 
In the New Testament, the dominant form is the new exodus. All over the writings of Paul, he talks about redemption and the exodus story. Mark talks about the exodus here. And salvation is not just a transaction. And more than that, it's actually about transformation. So if you look back at the Passover, really cool stuff happens. The Passover lamb is at the beginning of the story, and, and you sacrifice this lamb, and, and, and the angel of death passes over the house, and, and that's where we get this idea of substitution, which is huge, and yes, and screaming from the mountaintops, it's beautiful, it's awesome, but it's just the beginning of the story. It's not the end of the story. The angel of death doesn't pass over, and then they're like, oh man, that's cool. Let's just stay here. All the Egyptians lost their firstborns. Yeah, I think we got a leg up on them. Let's hang out here. No, no, no. That was the beginning of the story that God brought Israel out of slavery. Right? It was, it was, it was the, the Jordan River and the promised land and the wandering. It was just the beginning. God wants to do so much more in your life than forgive you of sins and give you a different eternity. God wants to do so much in your life right now. And, and you might say, well, yes, I, 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 I've, I've surrendered my life to Jesus and, and I've started going to church. Ah, that's great stuff. That's so great. But God does not want you to stay right there. He wants to lead you on a new exodus. He wants to take you on a journey. He wants to transform you into the kind of people that he's created you to be. And, and there's this idea of Babylon and slavery and exodus and all that kind of stuff. And he wants to take you on a journey out of narcissism. He wants to lead you out of addiction. He wants to, he wants to lead you out of a haunting, haunting memory of abuse in your life. He wants to take away the pain. He wants to take away the bent in your life inwards on yourself. He wants to take you out of the cycle you're stuck in. He wants to transform you. He wants to lead you out. And you might say, just like the people of Israel, oh, that could never happen. That could never happen. Imagine being the people of Israel. And Moses is talking all this stuff about going out of Egypt. And you're, whatever. Whatever. And, and you might be sitting here like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe in, in what he did for me. But man, this is just the life I'm stuck with. This is just the pain from my childhood that I'm stuck with. And I just got to think it through it. This is uh, the, the, the past that I have. This is the, the pain of relationships that are gone. These, the, I, just, I just need to get through it. I just need to like grip my teeth through some temptation, you know, pray a few prayers through some hardship and, and just wait for the wait for the end. And that is not God's plan. That is not the story of salvation. That's not the whole story of salvation. The whole story of salvation is an encounter with God. It has this moment at the beginning where you surrender your life, you you lay down your life and you begin to follow Jesus. You begin to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. But, but it's this beautiful journey. So I have three questions for us this morning as we end. First one is this. Have you experienced that first thing? Have you repented of your sins? Been baptized and filled with the Spirit? I mean, this is this, this language that I know it sounds 
really churchy, but it's this language that's all throughout the community of God. Have you, have you surrendered? Now, here's the thing. Some of you are like, man, I've never been baptized. I, I want to, like, make that happen. Like, I want to show the world that I have a new identity, a new family, a new destiny. We can baptize you. We can baptize you today. It's behind. I'm just kidding. No, it's like this hole open. No. But I know a guy that has a hot tub in his backyard. And he will baptize you today. It, the halftime of the first football game, maybe. No, I'm just kidding. No, seriously. If you go, like, I'm really feeling the spirit calling me to be baptized. Let's do it. Let's do it today. I don't have anything going on the rest of the day. Come over. I'll feed you. We'll, just, we'll do baptism. Bring your friends. Let's do it. Group text, yeah. We'll send it out. Mandy, she's next door. Um, so if you want to be baptized, come talk to me. If you, want to, if you want to start this journey of exodus and transformation, let's, we want to pray with you. Second question I have for you is what's next? What's next for your journey? Like, What's next for your transformation? For some of you in this room... You have avoided dealing with things in your past, uh, pain, abuse, family of origin stuff. You have, you have avoided it, and you've said to yourself, or maybe somebody very Christian and well-meaning has said, that doesn't matter anymore because you know Jesus. And I would say, no, it very much matters, and you're continuing to follow Jesus. For some of you in this room, it may mean, hey, it, it might be a, a dive into some therapy. And for some of you in this room, it may mean, hey, jump into Faith Walking 101 with us and, and, and begin to uh, reflect a bit on your childhood and what, how God, how that formed you and how God wants to reform you and transform you. That happens in March, March 13th and 14th. Maybe for some of you, you're sitting here and you're like, what's next on my transformation? Maybe it's me uh, putting myself out there more. Maybe it's me risking more. Maybe it's me trusting more. Maybe it may be you uh, joining a community and, and, and putting people around you that are rooting for you. Maybe it's for some of you who jumped into tutoring. I've heard stories of, of some of our crew that have been tutoring kids through WizKids. It's been uh, monumental. Some of you maybe feel the call to be pushed towards the margins and the poor in our community. Some of you, let me just be honest, there's this really great opportunity, and I would encourage you to think about it if you'd like. Some of you know I'm a chaplain with the police department. Sometimes when we show on calls, show up on calls that there's been trauma or domestic violence, they call a group of volunteers called Victims Advocates. And Victims Advocates who are on call uh, on volunteer basis to show up on scene and to meet with victims of trauma and to be there with them and care for them and pastor them and, and show them what resources they have ahead of them. And there's a huge need for this. And so maybe you're interested in doing something like that. Uh, here's what I would encourage you. Don't leave this building without thinking, what are my next steps? Like, what is this exodus journey, this transformation journey God wants to take me on? And do not settle. Don't slip into maintenance mode. Um, 
Because it's super easy to make our lives all about our lives. Here's the third question. Are you leaning into the Spirit to sustain you along the way? Are you leaning into the Spirit to sustain you along the way? And here's, here's, here's my thing. For some of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, God still wants to do work in you. God still wants to transform you. But maybe you're in a season of your life where you just feel stuck. And you feel dry. And you feel kind of defeated. And you feel like that God hasn't spoken to you in months, years. We want to pray for you this morning. And I know this is one of those things that's hard sometimes uh, to, to admit. But if you feel like you're dry, you're stuck, you're, you feel like when you read those words of God pouring out his spirit like water on dry ground, you're like, oh, I want that. But I don't know how to do that. What I want to do is I want to leave space for that this morning. Okay? And, and when we close, and I send you off, there is going to be a place for you to come and be prayed for. And, and it could be that. It could be that reason. It could be any reason. Maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you want to follow Jesus for the first time. Maybe you want to tra see transformation in your life. Whatever you want to be prayed for. We have a number of people in this place that are just, I would love it. And that's why they're here, is to encourage you, to pray for you, and to root you on. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to dismiss us and send us. And then if you would like to come for prayer, just come maybe over to this section or over here at the corner.